welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we are the voice of antelope hunting and not just any antelope hunting but diy antelope hunting and i have a great guest my hunting partner for montana antelope this year and good friend mr tim kent uh from phoenix branding tim welcome to peterson's bull hunting radio hey christian thanks for having me on i really appreciate it oh man i knew uh as soon as we had the experiences we had uh, out in Montana here uh, a couple weeks back that we were definitely going to have to get on and do a show because, um, man, it was just a great time. And I really think people are going to uh, hopefully learn a few things and, and just just enjoy uh, hearing about all the possibility that's out there for, for bow hunters who want to pursue pronghorns out west. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, for a lot of people, if they don't have that on their radar, they're certainly missing out because it doesn't necessarily conflict with other pursuits that people want to get involved with, whether it's elk or um, whitetails or mule deer or whatever. And, you know, as we've discussed a little bit, I got myself in a little bit of trouble because, you know, taking on a hunt in August wasn't the best plan on the home front as far as mama was concerned, but we fortunately made the best of it. So, she wasn't too upset. Had I come home empty-handed, it may have been a different outcome. Yeah, but we didn't, and uh, I sweet talked <laughs> her. I sweet talked her as good as I could for you, and you uh, did well. Yeah, I try. I try. So, so for those of you who are listening, you know, hopefully, if you have never done a, an antelope hunt and it's something that you've considered, today's show is going to help you. Uh, to be able to accomplish that and also hopefully inspire you to, to try it. And, you know, just before we kind of dive into it all, Tim, by way of introduction, I think most folks know, you know, that I'm in Pennsylvania. Certainly, I mention it all the time if you listen to the show. Uh, Tim lives in upstate New York. So we're talking about two East Coast guys. Uh, heading out to Montana, and uh, you know, this was something that kind of had its genesis back I- at the ATA show in January. So we were kind of planning this for nine months, and you and I had both been out west before, and we've we've hunted antelope. I'd hunted antelope uh, uh, with outfitters a couple times, and I had done a DIY hunt uh, last year in South Dakota. So I've done it both ways, and and I think you probably have too, Tim. But uh, want to tell me a little bit about your background uh, in pursuing pronghorns i've actually never done an outfitted hunt for pronghorns so everything i've i've ever done has been diy and you know there's been a couple of instances where i've been fortunate in that i have friends that live in places that have pronghorn or i've, I've worked with other people that were local that, that i've been friends with and they were generous enough generous enough to point me in the right direction but the challenge always in lies um, nobody's going to give away their honey hole, uh, whether it's for spot and stock or hunting over water. There's a few people out there, but generally it's, it's pretty tough. So we're having to go and do all of that on our own from, you know, nearly 2000 miles away. So, um, you know, and that was the perfect example on this particular trip in that we didn't have anybody pointing us in a specific direction saying, oh, hey, I'd check out these particular roads and, you know, in advance. Now, the guy that we stayed with once we got there uh, had some input, but we had already sort of established what our what our hunt plan was before that. And then we showed up a few days early to invest some time just going and getting behind glass and driving around and and viewing antelope and that was certainly to our, our benefit but you know we had never stepped foot in the area before it's pretty cool yeah i think the thing you know the biggest thing for people to know just right off the bat is you know like last year i was not successful on my diy hunt in south dakota uh, but i still saw a ton of antelope every day and you know we saw a ton of antelope every day 
on on this hunt and you know part of that i guess is not surprising because antelope live out in the wide open so they're not hard to see or find once you identify an area where they're at but more specifically what i mean tim is you know both last year and this year um you know almost all the hunting that i did was on public land and there was no shortage of antelope so you know it's pretty hard in 2019 to think that you're just going to drive out west and get into like a really primo elk hunting area without an outfitter or a limited draw tag that takes you years and years to get um, same kind of thing not quite as much so but but certainly when it comes to high-end quality hunting same thing's going to be for mule deer you know you're not going to just get into really great mule deer hunting again without the assistance of an outfitter or uh, a, a tag that you've got to accumulate some points to get your hands on um, but antelope's not like that antelope is the one species of the west um, at least in terms of big game you know where you can still drive out there and on a very reasonable budget get yourself into the heart of the action in relatively short order and have a realistic opportunity at getting you know a neat animal that is a great unique trophy and uh some really good table fare too tim oh yeah absolutely it i think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that you, you just have so many visual experiences with them because they're out in the wide open the, the challenge becomes okay what what does the the plan of attack look like because as we had discussed previously from from what I can tell, they really utilize terrain in a way species of animal that I've hunted does. I mean, every animal uses terrain to their advantage, but antelope just really put themselves in the best spot to to protect themselves. And the the thing that I'm usually looking for when when I go out and a couple of my friends that are far more experienced than than you or I they always say you got to find one that's just in the in the right spot for you and the wrong spot for them or you have to find a dumb one <laughs> and so um or you know if you're a little later in the year one that that is in the right mood to decoy we were we were kind of on the edge of that we did have one decoy in but um it was you know it was one of those situations where we had a lot of attempts where things didn't go right and it can, it can certainly become frustrating, but you gotta, you just gotta keep, keep trying and keep solving the riddle and, and putting yourself in the best position for success. But it's a, it's a challenge. They're, they're fun, but they are frustrating at the same time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, part of that, both what I experienced last year and this year, it's, it doesn't always have to be so frustrating. We, we dealt with some difficult conditions. So, you know, let's get into some of that. Uh, before before we talk about, you know, sort of timing and, and tactics and things like that, I want to just throw out, you know, I had mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago about how available these things are. And there's a bunch of states where you can do this. You know, like I had mentioned, I hunted South Dakota uh, last year. Um, North Dakota has antelope. Um, you know, we hunted Montana this year, uh, Colorado, uh, Arizona, Nevada. Um, I don't know what else I'm missing. I don't know if there's any antelope. Oh, so Wyoming, of course. Wyoming is probably Montana. Did you one. touch on Montana? Yeah, I mentioned Montana. I don't know if there are okay. any goats. Idaho, do they have a few goats? They might. But yep. point, point being, there are a lot of states throughout the West that offer pronghorn hunting. And not only are the tags a lot easier to get than your deer and elk tags but they're relatively inexpensive i don't remember exactly what it was but i'm re remembering like our, our licenses for this year were about 220 bucks and i mean that's cheaper than a resident deer license in some states <laughs> you know yeah what i mean it's it, it's nothing 220 dollars when uh, i know i'm going back to montana here in september for an elk hunt and that tag was like over $1,100. So you're talking mm -hmm. about pe peanuts in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, it, yeah, I think all said and told, it was less than $300 for for everything that Montana requires, tag and license and habitat stamp and everything else. It was 
It's, in my opinion, it's a very reasonable tag gauge. Again, by contrast to an elk tag, I mean, I know, I know my elk tag for this year was over $600, you know, um, whitetail tags in a lot of states. I mean, especially if you're looking at, you know, places like Illinois or Iowa, where you're talking about, you know, tags that are in, in excess of four or five, you know, in some instances, $600 to, to shoot a whitetail. So, um, you know, it's, it's also very reasonably cost without a doubt. Yeah. Interestingly enough, everyone complains about Illinois and Iowa and they are expensive, but Montana, where we were, has actually, I think, the most expensive non-resident deer tag in the country. It's over $600. So you can hunt pronghorns in Montana for a third of the license cost of hunting a deer, which I can hunt whitetails right behind my house here in Pennsylvania. I don't have to yep. go to Montana for that. So 220 bucks for an antelope tag is a great deal. And, you know, we're not going to offer our GPS coordinates for our recommended hotspots today. I know some of you who are listening had your pad and paper out and ready to take those down. But I will just say this in terms of, you know, once you sort of do a little bit of research and settle on a state, um, or if, you, if you're not sure what state to go to and you're wondering, you know, where it might be a good place to hunt, um, I'm just going to say that the state agencies have a lot of information on their websites that can help you with that. So uh, if you're serious about trying to do this, uh, I would encourage you to get on the Game and Fish websites for the various states that you're interested in. You can probably find uh, pronghorn uh, harvest reports from previous years and that'll show you not only the number of antelope that are being killed but generally speaking where they're being killed most of these states also have uh, hunting atlases where you can identify um, public land as well as uh, private land that's enrolled in public access programs i know for tim and i um, you know like in montana this year we hunted a lot of blm land we hunted a lot of state land and we also made use of Montana's block management uh, program, which is private land that's enrolled in public access. And we hunted uh, on a couple of different block management areas, and we, we actually saw quite a few antelope there. So, so not only is it easy to get tags and find animals, but there's actually plenty of land. I mean, we didn't really, if you think about it, Tim, in the area we were, where we were, we did a lot of driving and we looked at a lot of different pieces of ground, but in the grand scheme of how much public land is out there, we didn't barely scratch the surface of, of what you could explore if you had the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And further to your point, you know, two, two things that I, I think are really important for people to take into consideration is, and this is true for any species, really. Um, a lot of those states have really excellent hunt planners and those hunt planners have, just a glut of information that you can utilize to, to your advantage to help start narrowing down on what you're looking for, you know, particularly in that, that, that state. And then you can start drilling down on what uh, the best information is. I mean, I think that's a, that's a vastly overlooked tool, uh, you know, all too often. And then, you know, more to your point is the access to public land and block management, um, you know, what's cool about some of those block management properties, a couple of them that we, we utilized, they were just sign in for the day. And then a couple of them were, you could sign in and then you had a finite amount of time. Uh, you could sign in and have access to it for, for two days or three days or whatever. And there were different systems in which you could quote unquote sign in. Some of them you actually had to call into the state uh, BMA number and get, and get permission and then they gave you information to go and sign in and where some of them you have to actually go to the actual ranch headquarters and speak with the landowner themselves. And then some of them, again, are just these basic sign-in boxes and that'll, that'll uh, account for you know, a large variety of area. But on some of those, some of those ones where you actually have to call in, there's a finite amount of people that they'll allow on that particular block. So, as an example, the one piece that we hunted, there was only three groups allowed with a maximum of 10 people. And we never even saw anybody utilizing that, that particular parcel other than one other group. And 
it was covered up with antelope. So the opportunities by comparison to the east in hunting public land, and, and trust me, I love hunting public land, and I'm grateful for it and the, to have the resource. But as Christian said, hunting these large tracts of public ground. I mean, there was, there was one piece of block management that was five, over 5,000 acres owned by one landowner. And that was intermixed in BLM and state ground and, and, and some other private parcels as well. But that 5,000 acres by comparison to what I have here in New York state or what Christian has in Pennsylvania is enormous. And again, it's part of a larger patchwork of ground that that could potentially equal you know tens of thousands of acres. So back to the opportunities. I mean the the opportunities that access are vast, and it's just really it's really really fortunate that we have the ability to utilize you know in some cases other people's land that are saying yeah sure come you can you can use our our land just make sure you sign in and whatever else and. Um, it's just, it's just great. It's just great. And it's not, oh, it's not, I mean, I don't, I'm sure you would agree. It's, there's not an overwhelming amount of people either because they're just dispersed over across a much larger landscape. Yeah, not at all. I mean, the hunting pressure out there, if you, if you live anywhere, you know, in the eastern half of, of the country, the hunting pressure that we saw out in Montana is really nothing compared to what we saw, um, here you know what you'd see here at home now Mm -hmm. a thing about having that much land to hunt is that um it takes a while to get your bearings when you get on the ground and i think you know for anyone who's going to do this for the first time or even if you've done it before like tim and i but you're going to be in a new area you kind of have to expect that uh, the first time you go to a given area, you're probably going to spend at least half of your first hunt just figuring out where the best areas are and what the best tactics are going to be for that particular you know week or so that you might be in the area because things are going to change, um, you know, depending on weather and range conditions and, and things like that. So I know for us, Tim, it took us. It took us a few days to kind of realize um, some things that probably would have helped us maybe get done a little quicker quicker if we had known right up. I know one thing was, uh, you know, a big one, and I'll throw this out just as a general tip for folks. Um, I think we would have been better off focusing on the pieces of public ground that were a little further from uh, the main highway in the area because when we got there, we, we were there a day and a half before opening day and we found a lot of antelope that were pretty accessible and we got a couple blinds set up for ourselves and probably would have been in pretty good shape there. Um, you know, and, and it was not too bad for the first two days of the season. The season opened on a Thursday this year, but when that first weekend came and we had Saturday, Sunday, even though it wasn't a ton of hunting pressure, there were enough other hunters who came into the area for the weekend that it did end up um, impacting those animals uh, right on, on that piece of public ground where we were focusing. It was a little bit of state ground and BLM ground where we had set our initial blinds. And, you know, the, those animals just basically ended up getting pushed over to some private land not too far away, but uh, they were safe, you know, sort of inaccessible to us at that point over there. And so we had to kind of readjust and, and go find some new ground. Those are just the kind of things that if you're going to do a DIY hunt of any kind, you know, you have to expect that. You have to kind of embrace that. And, and certainly, you know, if you've never hunted antelope before, I would expect, you know, plan on you know you're gonna have to spend some time doing that you may you may not find success right off the bat you might not even find success the first year but i bet you if you commit to giving it another try you know you're really laying the groundwork for a lot of success in the future by getting to know your hunting area yeah from an overall strategy standpoint generally when people think about antelope hunting early season before they'll they'll start getting aggressive with decoying you know, people, and you touched on this, but people generally think waterhole hunting. Okay, I'm going to set up a blind on a waterhole and 
you know, water is generally relatively sparse. Well, obviously in, in our case, things have been really wet in Montana this year. So we had abundant amounts of water. Now antelope were, were hitting the water holes that were, that we were on. We, we saw them doing it either from the blind or otherwise, just not the animals that we were after, but it was just so inconsistent that that meant that we had to sort of change our, our hunt plan and what we were going to do. And we certainly weren't adverse to doing spot and stock, but ultimately we knew that that was the best way to put the odds in our favor at that point. But you have to take all of that stuff into consideration as you're planning out your hunt. And, and again, I'm going to go back to hunt planning and, you know, you need to know in advance, okay, if this doesn't work this way, then I need to do this other thing. And, you know, <laughs> we joked around about this a lot while we were out there. Generally, people think that an antelope hunt is, is quote unquote, an easy hunt. And I would, I would agree with that from the standpoint of um, a hot summer well, with limited uh, exactly. water. It, it can be easy. It, it can, can be it easy. Can be. It can be, right. It can, on a hot summer with limited water, uh, yeah, it can, it can certainly be, quote, unquote, easy. And you, you likely will only need a couple, three days. Well, in this particular instance, we, we, outside of scouting time, we had five hunt days and we squeezed out every last drop of those five hunt days to make it, to make it happen. Um, because it wasn't a hot summer. We had one day where the high temperature was 61 degrees in Montana in the middle of August. We had a high yeah, and it rained. Didn't it rain <laughs> half the days that we were there? Didn't we have at least some rain? Right, right, and we had more we had more seventy something degree days than we had ninety something degree days. Oh, if so, it got, if if it even hit ninety, it was only on one afternoon the entire time. That's right. And you know, I that's just exactly talked, right. I just talked to Rich a couple of days ago, and he he said that since we went home, it's rained like so many times. It's not even funny. Perfect. We had the perfect weather window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, typically early in the season, you're looking at sitting water. But the last two summers, and this is what really killed me last year in South Dakota, is really the reason, I mean, I can't say it's not, it's it's the reason I didn't tag out because who knows if I would have, you know, made a shot or whatever. But water hole hunting was completely unproductive last year in South Dakota. It was just about as unproductive in Montana this year. And when you're there early in the season and it's wet like that and there's not much of any action at the water holes, you're in a bit of a pickle as an antelope hunter because most of the, you know, with a rifle, it'd be no problem. But when you're bow hunting and you've got to get to a reasonable distance of these animals, uh, stalking antelope is extremely difficult and particularly early in the season like this because uh, later into September when those antelope are rutting you can decoy those bucks in pretty readily with a challenger buck decoy but you're, you're likely to have very, very spotty success doing that uh, early in the year. Like you said, Tim, you know, and we can talk about it a little bit later, but we were fortunate to, to be able to decoy in one buck, which I ended up killing, but most of the antelope that we showed our decoy to over the course of the week did what? <laughs> Ran for the hill or just were so apprehensive about it. They were, they were not, they were not excited about that decoy. Not, they weren't ready for it that yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, but on the flip side, and I think you've done some of this, I've actually, you know, every time I've hunted antelope, and I think that was my, so I think that was my fourth or fifth antelope hunt, and um, I've never done the rut thing yet. I always go early season, and again, just because for me, it fits into my hunting schedule, because as the antelope ruts coming in, there's early whitetail season starting, you know, like I'm heading to Kentucky actually next week for the opener of whitetail. So once you get into early September, you start to bump into some of those early whitetail openers, elk seasons are coming in. So I just have always done it, but I know, I think you've done some, some rut hunting and done the decoy thing in the past, right? You know, like, yeah, I caught just the early stages of the rut. Um, I did another Montana hunt, oh gosh, a while ago. And that was just in the, 
seemingly the, the beginning stages of the rut. That was over Labor Day weekend, so it would have been this, this weekend and uh, a few days afterward. And we definitely had some rutting action where the bucks were out scraping. They were bumping does around. They were, you know, the bucks were chasing other bucks off. And they were responding to decoys a little bit. They weren't hot and heavy yet. It seems to me and, you know, the folks that I talk to, they say a little bit more towards the middle of September is when it gets really good. You know, kind of like the whitetail rut is sort of the middle of November a lot of the time. So, um you know, and then uh, I did another hunt a few years ago where it was just a touch later in August and they were responding a little bit to the decoys. Super aggressive manner, but again, more in in a uh, in a curiosity sense where they're, they were like, oh, wow, that, that antelope wasn't there before. I guess maybe I'll go and check them out. And then they would come, they would come, you know, right on the fringes of being in range, you know, in the in the you know upper 80 90 100 yards and then kind of get hung up and so they were responding to but not coming in and trying to run you over like like i've heard other guys talk about i i have to experience that one day because it sounds like it's really cool when they're when they're really aggressive yeah you can imagine it would be like it'd be like a big gobbler you know come running into your decoy set in in the spring you know mm-hmm. and it just gets your heart pounding um you know i do want to give a shout out to montana decoy and i would say you know i was like we really should talk about gear and equipment and and, and what you need to do an antelope hunt and um you know since we were talking about decoying i would say if you're gonna if you're gonna take the time to go and do a DIY antelope hunt. You definitely don't want to go without a decoy, and um, it's hard to beat the Montana decoys when it comes to con- convenience because, you know, their photo photos printed on fabric, and they've got, like, a spring steel frame, and they fold up as flat as a pancake, and you can actually carry several decoys in your backpack, and it you know weighs almost nothing and you can deploy these things in the field you know in an instant essentially and and uh you know they're great tools to have even if you're even if you're going early like tim and i did and you think you're going to be sitting on water you never know ultimately what's going to be going down until you're actually on the ground and in it and that decoy um it really kind of ended up being the linchpin for for one of the two antelope you know that we got and and um that was just a really cool encounter where you know we popped that decoy up and and that buck um you know came from about i don't know what 250 yards away to to 50 basically 53 and i was able to put a good shot on that buck and just really really neat watching that thing slowly kind of come in while i was kneeling behind that montana decoy watching it and uh you know thinking to myself man this is pretty cool like i you know after after four days of trying to crawl up on those things and realizing how impossible it was i was definitely digging the fact that a decoy was making that antelope do the work for me you know what i mean Uh uh-huh yeah yeah absolutely well you know there's two things like the one thing i have to say was watching you come to full draw behind that decoy was just picture perfect i know i had said to you before i wish i had you know taken the opportunity to swing my camera around and get a picture of it because it was just just the lighting and the way it was against the hill and everything else was just the, the the perfect shot but but you know, we would have never even been in that situation if that, that animal didn't respond. And yeah, I would say he definitely came from, from probably two two fifty. And what was neat about that particular, that particular buck was he was, I believe the first antelope that we got on that was completely alone. And he was just eating and hanging out and doing his thing. And it, it, it kind of makes you wonder back to what I was saying earlier, was he serious and that's why he was coming into the decoy or was he being aggressive and that's why he was coming in you know uh, uh, that that buck was was a big mature antelope and part of me really wonders if he was kind of protecting his territory or if he just was looking for for friendship i i don't know but but ultimately it ended in his demise and and by the way i'm still marveling in that shot it was just such a 
awesome shot, man. I mean, you just pinwheeled him. It was incredible. Um, well, even yeah. a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. <laughs> it was it was cool because when I got to full draw, he was facing. Uh, his head was pointed towards me and just as I was settling the pin and getting ready to shoot he actually turned his body and he was facing then straight on and I had to hold for a few seconds and then he actually turned back the other way he was probably starting to get a little bit nervous because you know I had to move around behind that decoy to get my bow and um, the funny thing about this whole counter right is Tim had actually crawled up uh, ahead and, and hid behind a hay bale and I was trying to decoy it in for you and uh, Tim actually just didn't have a good angle and couldn't see see the, the pronghorn because of the way the, the topography was and, and then I had to think about getting a shot so I was I was actually doing all kinds of stuff behind that decoy. I had to grab my bow off the ground and knock an arrow, and then I had to pop up over the back of that thing and take a range. And it was a bit of a three-ring circus, and the fact that that antelope stood there the whole time just staring at that decoy really speaks highly to how effective they can be. But I definitely think what you said is so true, Tim. Finding an antelope that's all by itself, or maybe just a small group of two or three animals, so much easier than it is with a big group to get on when it comes to stalking because too many eyes uh, in those big groups and it only takes one animal to get nervous to make them all nervous. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that goes back to the thing about, you know, finding, finding the right one and that's in the right place. Um, you know, it's just, it's just critical because you can, you can certainly find success in those larger groups, but just with, with just more eyeballs and they already have what they need. I mean, the lion's share of the groups that we saw while we were out there was large groups of does and, and little ones. And then there'd be one buck with, with them. And he was basically caring for his harem. And, um, there were a couple of small, well, actually we did get into one bachelor group of bucks that was, enormous i think it was what 13 or something like that yeah, antelope were, of was all big, sorts of sizes big group of bucks all together yeah. yeah yeah but uh you know those those individuals are are definitely far and away more more prone to, to ha- getting themselves into trouble and, and, and you know going back and doing it again that's definitely a thing that i would bear in mind uh, on my next hunt oh yeah i mean when you're when you're doing spot and stock antelope hunting, I think, honestly, one of the biggest determining factors of your success is just going to be being smart about which groups of antelope to even get out of the truck and try to get close to versus just saying, no, it's too many. It's not in the right spot. You know, if, the, if there's no cover and there's no terrain, just don't even bother. Like we had some w- luck that we had was either by you know using some topography to get behind you know a, a hill or get down into a dry creek bed that we could use to go across the terrain because otherwise you're just not going to get very far in in ankle high grass uh, <laughs> on an antelope that has like ten power binoculars as eyeballs. Right, and they're only going to tolerate a decoy, like whether it's an antelope decoy or a cow decoy, for for so long before they're just like, ah, there's just something odd about this. Especially if you start changing the angle in which you're coming at them, like you know what I, what I found um, is you got to kind of knife edge in on them. But at a certain point, you can't do that. You just got to use that decoy as a block and start working your way in, and they did they just know that something is up at that point and again right at this time of year they're not in the right frame of mind to to dismiss it and, and want to be aggressive uh, you know and, and i think that's that's likely further to to the point when it it's a buck that maybe has those with him and they don't care about the, the rut at that point or they you know they're just they're not interested in in any of that stuff they're already with their their buck they're good and then now you got two more sets or three more sets or 20 more sets of eyeballs on you and and the buck is you know gonna do whatever they're going to do if they take off he's going with them he already has them so it's 
it's just one of those things where, again, you gotta, you gotta start making good decisions. And there were so many instances where we would drive past a group and they'd be in a spot and we'd just look at them and no matter how much we wanted to get after them, we would just stop, put our binoculars on them, look at them for ha-ha's and then move on because we knew we could make, we could make nothing out of that. And like Kristen was saying, oftentimes that was a big group of ghosts out. Well, it didn't even have to be a big group. Um, a group of goats out in the middle of an open area that was, you yeah, know, like ankle com- high, knee high, or 500, 500 acres of completely flat prairie yeah. with, with yeah. no, no cover. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. You got a yeah. better chance of hitting the lottery than you do killing one of those antelope <laughs> with your bow today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They've seen that before. I've seen this happen before. Truck stops, <laughs> guys get out. All of a sudden there's a, there's two things crawling through the field. That looks weird. Yeah, well, and oh. the thing is, the thing is, um, we'd never think about this here back east. Um, it's hard a lot of times to even park your vehicle and get out without the antelope seeing you because it's so wide open out there. There's literally, you know, no trees to speak of unless you're right along a creek. Um, and those antelopes see so well, like, isn't it amazing that you literally slow the truck down and pull over on the side of the road and from like, I'm not exaggerating, it from a mile or a mile and a half away, these antelope yeah. will stop what they're doing and stare at the vehicle. Yes, yes, it, it was mind bending to, to, to see that happen on so many instances because you're thinking, oh, I'm so far away, you're not going to impact me. You do that to a whitetail, they don't care. You know, they're not even going to pay attention. <laughs> I mean, there's rare instances that you can see that far where we usually hunt whitetails. But, but you know, you can't get away with that. It's just not possible. And they, they just would, you would, again, stop the truck and glass them, and they'd be peering at you. You wouldn't even get out of the truck. And they, they were just locked on. They knew something was going on. It was, it was quite interesting, quite interesting. I and mean, there were many, many, many times where the beginning stages of trying to form a plan, the first step in that was just figuring out where we could get out of their line, get the truck out of their line of sight. And, and that was, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just critical. It's just critical. Cause then you pop out of the truck and you start working your way through the one spot where Christian was saying that we used the drainage, um, in that particular instance, the, the, the biggest linchpin to all of that was where those, where those particular animals were laid up. We, they just had the advantage to see the truck entire length of this, this road section and this big piece of BLM. And we just, there was just literally one little spot and it was probably maybe three, four, maybe five at the most truck lengths long where there was, there was just a little piece of topography that blocked their view. And that's where we ultimately ended up having to park. But we, you know, we, we drove back and forth trying to figure that out. I'm frankly surprised that those, those antelope didn't bust right out of there to begin with because we were, we were doing weird stuff, but fortunately they didn't. And we were able to... Yeah, we actually, that of all the antelope that we sort of stalked on, that was a group that, you know, a couple, those group, because they, they came back, I think we ended up doing two stalks uh, on those antelope, and, and we yep. got relatively close, you know, like you said, we might have gotten to, oh, would we probably get to 120 maybe at one point? I would say, yeah, because that group was so big, they were between 120 and 150, and we may have had some a couple, a, a little bit closer than that, but it's difficult to tell because of the terrain. Yeah, that's the other downside. That's that's the other challenge of of having some topography, you know, some terrain features to help you get closer is that everything looks really simple when you're a mile away planning the stock. But once you're at 500 yards and you're down in a ditch and nothing looks exactly the same as it did from the truck and you're trying to figure out, you know, if you can, you know, make it, you know, 
to certain points and where you should pop up and then yeah realizing that maybe there were more antelope there in the group than you saw when you started and and you're you know you're trying to go off after a couple of bucks that are in this certain spot that you saw but there was other antelope nearby and so in trying to get that's what happened to us really in trying to get to those bucks that we were after we didn't realize there were other bucks closer and 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 they kind of saw us and and then it was over and then we realized that was that group that was like 13 you know bucks all together and and uh anyway you know it's you you learn a lot you learn a lot in doing this and it's certainly uh, it's a pretty good exercise in uh in stalking and in getting some exercise yeah and it's definitely a great way to start your season because it's, it's already honing your shooting skills. It's, it's honing your glassing skills. It's honing your spotting skills, uh, you know, everything. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's just a great opportunity to, to start the year out. And, you know, to fill your freezer with a bunch of that delicious meat on top of that, it's just, just, a, just a, it's the best. I mean, it's just the best way to start, in my opinion. Well, and the other thing that it's really good for, I mean, really, really good for, especially if you're a, a Western hunter, but even for those of us in the East, you know, it's really good for forcing you to get your shooting skills tuned up well before opening day yep. of, of deer or elk seasons. Because, uh, you know, as you might ha- surmise from listening to us, you know, we, we've made it pretty clear that getting close to these things is no mean feat. And, um, you know, uh, my shot was 53 yards. Uh, Tim's shot was longer than that by uh, a decent margin. And I'll let Tim talk about it. But uh, you've got to be ready and able and willing uh, to, to reach out a little bit and shoot uh, if you're going to spot and stock uh, pronghorns in the West. And um, it's entirely doable, but you definitely need to spend some time on the range before the trip. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, the situation with your goat, which, uh, you know, like, like Tim said, you know, it was kind of 11th hour for both of us. I, I, I ended up killing my antelope on the last evening that we had in country and Tim got his done first thing the next morning. And we ended up heading out, uh, after lunch that day so we really did need all the time we had but kind of ran into another fortuitous situation with your goat as well we mentioned that my goat was an animal that we found all by itself in a field and we we had the good fortune of finding another one the next day tim yeah in in that particular situation we were we were going into a new piece of ground um, and we, we essentially came around a big topographical feature that was blocking the way and the view of this, uh, this really large stage flat. And we essentially just came around this turn and we saw that goat out feeding in the stage and <laughs> threw the truck in reverse and, you know, got out of his, his view. And then he was kind of, it was where two fence lines kind of, and he was on the opposite of where the one teed but essentially we we swapped and then drove we just we swapped spots where he couldn't see us and then we just crept down and then i i kind of slid out of the truck and then followed that one fence line down but um you know as as stealthily as i could given the terrain that we had and um he he kind of was on the other side and he, he was aware of my presence, but he just wasn't sure what was going on. And basically, you know, if I would close the distance a little bit, he would move off that same, that same distance essentially. So if I, if I closed it from like, like initially he was, you know, a hundred and something yards away and then, and then I would close it a little bit and then he would move off a little bit. And then I would close it a little bit and he'd move off a little bit. And if I moved five yards, he moved five yards and I would just let him calm down. And I think we did that three or four times. And I actually came to full draw on him once before I, I lose the arrow that I ended up shooting at him. And, you know, I just, I was just a little bit further than I wanted to shoot. And it was, it was pretty breezy that morning. So there were other factors. Um, but I, he finally just slipped up a little bit in that I moved and he didn't move as much that time. And I felt comfortable with that shot. And I'm not, I'm not going to kind of 
jump into what the exact yardage was, but it was it was longer than what my average stop. I don't was think. At, why don't you want to say honestly, Tim? I don't think it's <laughs> shameful by any means. Oh, I'm not shameful. I, I just I just don't want you know people to kind of jump on that. Uh, is that ethical kind of bandwagon? I mean, it, you know, it was it was it was nothing that. Plenty of other people have done before me. That's for sure. I it was over. I didn't six, break any it was shoes. over. I'm, it was over sixty nine yards. I'm going to leave yeah. it at that. It was over sixty nine <laughs> yards. And, and and so you you know uh, here's the thing, Tim. When you're out there for a week chasing these things, that doesn't seem very far anymore, does it? No, no, and and that's the thing. Um, you know, I was shooting here at the house last night. I can only shoot about forty yards just because of the way my yard lays out my neighbors and everything else. And I was shooting at 40 yards at a, had a 3d deer target. It wasn't even that big of a 3d deer target, probably about antelope body size. And it, it felt close, it, you know, cause I had just been out there for so long, uh, you, you know, tr- getting as close as we could, but, um, and you know, we had been practicing at longer range while we were out there and obviously before, but yeah, I mean, it, it just gets to the point where you, you, you just look at it differently. You're, you're kind of looking at it through a different set of eyes and it's not as big of a deal. So, yeah, for sure. And the thing is, you know, like, I don't know how long you practiced at before the trip. I, I was getting, uh, quite a few reps in out to 80 yards and, I did 80 because that's really as far as I could get my sight adjusted uh, with the particular sight that I was using. And um, not that I was thinking I was going to shoot at an antelope at 80 yards, but I thought that I might have to make a follow-up shot at that distance or something. Um, And, you know, it's just, well, Rich said it best, you know. (laughs) The guy that we stayed with out there, he... It's funny, I told you I called him back. Um, Rich is actually an outfitter uh, in the area out there. and um, He had some clients. He's a friend of ours, and, and we stayed at his house and hunted on our own. But uh, he he had some other clients that came in after we left, uh, Tim. And I didn't tell you this yet, but I, I talked to him the other day, and I, I had mentioned that, but I asked him how those hunters made out, and he said... Every single client that he had in after we left missed antelope. Some at water holes and some spot and stock. And it was just because they couldn't shoot far enough, you know, accurately or under pressure or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the situation was. And he said to me, he's like, honestly, he said, the reason, he said, you guys did about as good as you can do under the circumstances in coming out here and killing two antelope because I really feel that the reason you guys ended up, you know, going home with antelope as opposed to going home empty-handed is just because you guys could shoot, you know, and those other guys, you know, didn't capitalize on their opportunities. And that's not to, you know, listen, you and I are not going to tell anybody that we're the greatest shots in the world, but, um, you know, we, we were able to make two good arrows when we had to have them. One thing that I think we both uh, ought to mention and give a little credit where credit is due is, you know, when it comes to broadheads for antelope hunting, uh, I definitely think a, an expandable head is the way to go just because you are likely to be taking some longer than average shots at uh, situations where you're likely to have a, a fairly significant wind. I mean, we are on the prairie out there. It's almost always at least a little bit windy. So... Um, plus, I think they just do an absolute number uh, on the antelope. And we were both shooting uh, the new uh, Rage Hypodermic uh, NC, the no-collar design. And uh, that was the first time I had ever hunted with that thing. And, man, what what those heads did to our antelope, I wouldn't be hesitating to screw some of those broadheads on my whitetail arrows this fall. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I have really I, I was a steadfast guy who was not interested in expandable broadheads at all. And then uh, you know, however many years ago, I was actually doing a hunt with um, one of the people from Rage, and the host of the hunt asked me to shoot them. And I, I mean, I reluctantly did. And and it was a whitetail hunt, and um, 
I set my bow up for them and whatever else. And then I shot the first whitetail of the year. Oh, it was just, it was just a doe, but I shot that doe with that rage broadhead and it was, it was less than an ideal impact point. And I ended up recovering that deer, but the blood trail was absolutely amazing. And then, you know, kind of coming forward from that time that really sort of changed my, my viewpoint on that, because there's definitely been, um, you know, a, a few, a few animals during that time that, just, you know, I, I don't want to say I made marginal hits on, but they were, they were not exactly where I would have ideally wanted them to be. That's bow hunting. It happens. And I was able to recover those animals, both because of the, the size of the wound and then more importantly, because of the blood trail. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I just kind of really, really, have been impressed over the years. I've, you know, I, I used to not shoot them on elk and those type of things. And I've, I've, uh, where legal, I have gone to utilizing an expandable broadhead in every capacity that I can. Cause I've just experienced so much success. And a lot of guys will argue, Oh, well, it's going to fail you at some point. I saw a debate on Facebook the other day about that. And I, I'm not even going to go into how many animals I've shot with an expandable broadhead at this point, specifically a rage. And it's just unbelievably effective, you know, again, and, and all of the, all of the animals I've shot have been with different iterations of the rage. And, um, I'm, I'm a fan. I really, really am. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I just, I just wrote a, a piece actually, that's going to be in our November issue based off of my experience on that antelope hunt with the rage and the thing i said is because i'm somewhat in the same boat i mean i've been shooting not exclusively but i've been shooting rage uh on and off and fairly consistently ever since it first came out in 2006 and the thing about the the hypodermic nc is to me it's sort of the completion of a continual evolution in blade retention because if they're you know ever so if you think back to the original rage with that rubber o-ring that held the blades in place mm -hmm. that thing yep. that was a great broadhead from the moment it was like conceived the one consistent complaint that rage would get back in those early days was if you have a premature blade deployment it's not going to go well, right? That that arrow is going to plane off course. And there was definitely a situation, you know, with those O-rings where every O-ring didn't provide the same consistent amount of pressure. And so there was a potential, uh, maybe not common, but it could happen often enough that it was concerning. And so eventually they came out with the shock collars and that was mm -hmm. a huge improvement. And then after that, they came out with that new version of the shock collar that was keyed to match with yep. the ferrule so that people couldn't put them on wrong accidentally with the tripan. And, and now they've got the no collar and it's like, if there was one area of concern about that design, they've addressed it from the original to a significant improvement and then another significant improvement and now eliminating the collar altogether with this new design to me it's pretty elegant in its simplicity and it takes away you know a lot of what may have been a concern at one time is now to me like boy have they really nailed it with this yeah. And it's funny, like when they introduced that head, because they're, you know, they're a company that we work with. And when they introduced that head, the one question that we were asked consistently was whether or not those blades would, would stay closed with the new, the new no collar system. So, you know, the chink in the armor by some people's opinion before was the fact that the shock collar was there. And now they feel like the chink in the armor is the fact that the shock collar is not there. And, you know, I, I've only uh, shot a few animals with that and with zero problems and through engineering and testing and everything else, there's been no pre-deployments of blades up to, I want to say it's over 400 and something feet per second. I think it's even in excess of that. If I remember they use like an air cannon to test them, but, um, but yeah, it's just definitely the next evolution and there'll be some, um, 
some other heads coming out in the, the near future that will will continue to use that MC technology. So, but you know, just from from the standpoint of performance on flash, you know, hold, holding up in general, I don't think either of us saw even a bent blade on either of those he- heads and your your oh, particular my, my, broad my, head. The one blade on mine was a little bit bent, but okay, it went through a couple of ribs. So right, I was just gonna say, yeah, yeah. it yep. was, and it wasn't badly blunt. I, I I could actually close, I closed the head up again, and it's still like yep. closed and locked in place. So it wasn't bent so much that it wasn't like sliding through the ferrule or anything like that. So no, it was uh-huh. durable. And and honestly, I mean, you know, really the best thing I could say about the performance of that new head is that you know when I shot an animal with it the the results were very rage like you know what i mean in other words just as, just <laughs> yeah. as, just as good as i would have expected you know having shot a bunch of stuff with the hypodermic and the tripan i mean yep it i mean the you've got a picture of of the the one hole you know i mean it was a rage hole and um mm-hmm. you know yours oh my goodness gracious you 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 just zipped yours uh, right open. I mean, you, you practically cut your animal in half with your shot. So, um, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, it, you know, to the extent that you want to make a, a quick kill, uh, it's very effective. Uh, anyway, lots of good information here. Uh, you know, uh, have good. What else can we say about equipment? Quick before we wrap this up, Tim. Bring good optics, right? You need some good. Uh, I had you had ten buys. I had twelve buys on the binocular end of things, and we both had spotting scopes. And you definitely want to have some good glass. You want to have uh, a lightweight pack with with plenty of uh, water. You know, if you're going to be out there in the blazing sun, stalking around. W- what else? Knee pads. Oh yes, <laughs> knee pads with a good solid, like. Uh, like the ones that I had, you were you were envying all week. You had some knee pads that went into your pants that were just foam, and, and I have some with a rubber or a plastic, a hard plastic shell, which is really money with all the prickly pear cactus on the ground out there. I'm still picking cactus out of my knees and elbows. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What else? Need a lot of coolers, right? You're going to have to deal with getting things cooled down quickly if you are successful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we used some e-bikes a little bit to access some terrain. That was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, if you can find good access that way, it, it, you know, that's a, that's an excellent tool. Um, I personally, I like a site that you can, you know, you can dial yardage on. Um, I know you were using a movable site as well. Oh, yeah. I got to give I got to give those guys a, a shout out because you you actually asked me about that thing when we were out there, didn't you? Or I think somebody on no, yeah, it was a some, brand I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then also somebody on uh, I remember what it was. It was somebody on Instagram when I posted a picture. Uh, they were like, "What is that? You know, what is that glorious new site that I see on your bow or whatever?" And it's uh, <laughs> it's actually it's called the Carbon Fixation, and it's from a company called Buck Rub Gear, and it's a two pin site. So it's got a fixed pin that you can set at twenty or thirty or whatever you want and then it's got a slider uh that you adjust uh, for you know pinpoint aiming at the longer ranges and so yeah i agree with you i liked having uh when i ranged that animal at 53 yards i really liked the fact that i could reach down and move my pin right for 53 and then just hold it exactly where i wanted the arrow to go so yeah that was cool and kind of a cool site cool site check it out carbon fixation it's made with like a a polymer that's infused with carbon fiber super super lightweight site yeah it, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles if you need like third axis adjustability you're not going to get that but if you're looking for a fairly basic but still like quality uh adjustable site that's super light um it's pretty it's pretty snazzy what were you going to say tim oh no 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 i, I I mean, just, what, what, what you know, I, a good ground blind if you're going to hunt water. Oh, yeah, 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 good ground blinds. A couple we had, we had four ground blinds with us. We ended up only needing two, really. Um, yeah, what site were you shooting, Tim? Don't comment. 
No comment. Okay. Secret, secret. Must have been must have been something in development for 2020 that we're not allowed to know about. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we need to wrap it up because we're probably getting close to the hour. And uh, by golly, I think we've given some pretty darn good advice this episode. And and I hope that. A lot of people who listen to the show today take the plunge, get out there, and chase some speed goats out on the prairie. I just hope they all decide to go to our honey hole. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so, listen, buddy, I really appreciate your time. I know that uh, you were scrambling to get home from our hunt to go on a beach vacation with the family and I think today you're scrambling to get ready for a camping weekend here as we head into Labor Day so I really appreciate you sharing your your time with me and amongst all your family obligations oh thanks I appreciate you having me on it's always great to take advantage of opportunities like this and you know catch up with friends like you so thank you yeah well thanks again man have a have a good weekend and I'm sure we'll be talking soon but I wish you the best of luck in the field this fall Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.